This podcast is presented to you by Pastors Tom and Bonnie DeShal from Celebration Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more information, please visit celebrationmen.org. One of the things that happened for me at the prayer conference is uh, kind of a confirmation of things that Pastor Bonnie and I have been seeking over the past five years. I began at the end of last year talking about moving from the calendar as you know it, the Gregorian calendar to the Hebrew calendar, God's calendar. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that, but importantly is returning to our Hebraic roots. And as Pastor Mark Biltz began to open up the teaching from the Torah, the law of God, the first five books of the Bible, uh, I'm wanting to now, I'm wanting you now to see the Bible uh, in the 3D color that it's supposed to be, not just black and white. You know, I was, reading, I was reading my Bible in black and white. It was black print on a white page. And then all of a sudden, with the pictographic uh, nature of the Hebrew language, with the uh, numeric values of the Hebrew language, all of a sudden, the Bible came into 3D view, 3D, and it was in color. I thought, oh, my goodness, how did I miss all this? So... As a church, I want to lead you into your understanding and have you begin to learn how to study the Bible the same way that people who have studied for over 3,000 years studied the Word of God. My idea is why should I reinvent the wheel when there have been generations that have read the Bible with a Hebraic understanding, and we can glean from what they know. A few weeks ago, I was speaking, and I gave a message on, and, and I tied in an idea called cognitive dissonance. Anybody remember that message? Cognitive dissonance. Uh, I just want to know, have any of you experienced cognitive dissonance with Pastor Mark's teaching? Did your mind just kind of get brain freeze. There were a couple of times he just went on and on and on. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I don't think I've ever read the Bible after I'm listening to him, you know. I had such cognitive dissonance. My, my mind was pushing back saying, this is too hard. This is, this is too difficult. This, is, this isn't the way I learned the Bible. When you get that kind of pushback against truth, you, you need to know you have to push through and follow truth and not your cognitive dissonance. We're all lazy by nature. Tap your neighbor say, he's talking to you now. Amen. How many of you would like some more cognitive dissonance today? Well, you're going to get some anyway, okay. Today I'm going to be unlocking a critical truth from part of the teaching that Mark, Pastor Mark gave and from his book called God's Daytimer. God's Daytimer. As we begin our study, I want you to view what we're studying as a treasure hunt. You know, uh, my little sons and daughters, when they, when they were little, but my boys and, and my daughter, when they were little, loved treasure hunts. And we would hide things in the garden or we'd uh, give them uh, a way to follow a map or something like that. Even my son on his 18th birthday, Benjamin, I gave him a treasure map and he had to go out in the bush in the middle of the night uh, where there were lions and hyena and all kinds of things and he had to follow this treasure map in the pitch of night with a little flashlight to find his gift. It was kind of his initiation into manhood. See, some of you say, man, I'm glad I'm not his kid. <laughs> and so uh, uh, treasure hunts are fun. They're challenging. And God hides treasure for you and I. The Bible is very clear. It says, it is the glory of God, Proverbs 25, 2 says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it is the glory of kings to search out a matter. And God doesn't hide treasure from us. He hides treasure for us, and he hides it in his word. And God delights to conceal things because he wants us to search them out. And he delights when you find things. But you see, it's just like life. 
You know, we have kind of a false understanding of a lot of things in Zimbabwe. We think that if you get a good education, you're entitled to a paycheck. Hello? You're entitled to a job just because you went to school. You think just because you have a good education, you're entitled to position. But I'm going to tell you something. That's the biggest misnomer. Education doesn't afford you anything. You see, because you can have all the education and not know the secrets. The secrets of business. The secrets of things. Somebody says, I read the Bible. Yes, that's fine. But you didn't seek out the secrets of the Bible. You know, I had a, I had a lawyer in the church and... You know, I asked him, I said, are you reading your Bible every day? And this is kind of a pompous guy, and he said, I read it. I read the Bible. I said, I know, but the Bible is a living word. You need to read it every day. No, he says, I have law books on my shelf. He says, if I ever need to refer to it again, I'll just pull out the Bible like another law book. See, he didn't understand that the Bible is not something that's a reference book that you get a piece of information from now and then. It is life itself, and there's secrets in it. And every time you read it, there's another layer that's uncovered. And God begins to show you his secrets. You know, if you want to successfully have a business, they don't just happen. They take hard work. And as you work at your business, as you work at life, as you work at your marriage, guess what? You begin to... Learn and find the secrets to marriage. You begin to find the secrets to a good business. But if you're not looking for them, if you think you've achieved because you have a piece of sheepskin on your wall, you're a fool <laughs> with a sheepskin on your wall. A PhD that has no way to translate the PhD into reality. And that's what God got angry at the Pharisees about. That's what God got angry at religious leaders about, is that they had all the answers. They knew everything. They had all the degrees. They had textbook perfect responses, but they never found the secrets of God. That's what religion is. Religion has this form without, a, a form of godliness without the power thereof. It has a, a form without content. God forbid that we go there. God forbid that I become religious as a pastor. I, 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 and I think I have. I, and I want to confess, I'm sorry. If I've just become so religious that I just have pat answers for everything. Because there is no such thing as a pat answer. Wisdom is for those to whom God will show after much study, after much digging, after much seeking, don't take my answer for it. Find it for yourself. You know, when God gives you wisdom, nobody can take that away from you. When God shows you something, let me tell you something, it's yours. But don't believe just because Pastor Tom believes. The sons of Sceva had that problem. They said, we adjure you, Satan, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. See, they didn't have their own revelation. They knew that Paul could cast out demons. They believed that there was a Jesus that had authority. And so they said, we adjure you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And the demons jumped out and tore them apart. And that's what happens to many Christians. They, uh, well, we, 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 we are members of Celebration Church, whom Pastor Tom leads. And, you know, uh, and, and that means absolutely nothing. That's what exactly it means. It means absolutely nothing. Because what God wants with you is to reveal himself to you by revelation. Amen? And so there are things we can learn corporately. My job as a pastor is to teach you, to instruct you. But hopefully it's to create a hunger in you that says, wait, 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 wait. I want to dig down. I want to get deeper in this. And I want to find out what God is saying. I want to search out the things that he's concealed for me. Now, one of the keys to discovery is what is known as the law of first mention. So when you're reading the Bible, 
This simply means that the first time that something is mentioned in the Bible, it carries greater weight, it carries greater significance, and becomes the foundation of the next time or the other times that it's referred to in Scripture. So it's important for believers to start in the beginning. In fact, Isaiah 46 and verse 10 says this. It says that he declares the end from the beginning. He says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. So if you want to know the, what's going to happen at the end of the book, find out what the patterns are in the beginning of the book. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 9 says, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Now, I've lived in Zimbabwe now for over 37 years. And I can tell you that what has been is what will be. <laughs> and what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. And I can prove it to you. And I only wish I had the foresight to have taken photographs, because I don't read the newspapers, but I do read those, you know, as you drive down, they put all the headlines. They're the same headlines. They're just the names change. Daggers out. Knives out. Swords drawn. It's the same 20 headlines all the time. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. And I'm going to tell you that if your hope is in man, in this nation, you'll be utterly disappointed. But if your hope is in God, one day God will move upon the heart of a man. One day God may raise up a Cyrus. One day, and we have to believe for that. But I don't hear one man in this nation, not one politician, not one, who's calling upon God. But they're touting how powerful and how all-knowing they are. They have all the answers, which is evident. We have discussed an idea. The idea that as believers... We are commanded in the scriptures to test all things. Unfortunately, the culture that we live in has been guilty of accepting almost everything. We live in a culture that has been conditioned, conditioned to accept what they see on television, what they read in the newspapers, what they hear on the radio, what they watch and see in their social media. And unfortunately, almost everyone is focused on the I and me influence in our society. The selfie, the Snapchat, the Instagram. It's all about who? Me. Look at me. I am so important. I am so smart. I have all the answers. And it's feeding a sickness in our society. It has great entertainment value. But everything now has become entertainment. And very few people are dealing with truth. I believe that God is leading our church, and I think he's leading you and I, to a critical pathway and he's helping us to discover God's original intent. And his original intent has a lot to do with Hebrew culture, believe it or not. It has a lot to do with at least the Hebrew way of thinking. And I know that it's, it, it, it's really difficult uh, to understand a book or an author if you don't understand the culture or the mindset that he or she is writing from. You know, it's like when I first came to this country, I, I found it very, very hard to talk to 
many of the war veterans and the people that were, had fought the, the conflict uh, because I, I didn't understand where they'd come from. It wasn't until I had a few hours with President Mugabe and he poured his heart out and showed me his viewpoint how he had been betrayed at Lancaster House. How he felt that Tony Blair and Margaret Thatcher and, 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 and Ronald Reagan had, had, had really set him up for failure. How, how they had lied to him and how they didn't hold uphold. I, and, and as he began to pour his heart out, I, I, I listened to this man. And I thought, And I began to understand some of the pain. But see, if I hadn't really sat down and heard and listened, if I hadn't sat with many of you that had fought in the war, many of the, the people from our church that had gone through that liberation struggle, at the same time I sat with our European farmers and, and, and some of the people that were pioneers that came into this country and, and, and heard their point of view and saw how they felt. And I, I'm thinking, man, we have a real problem in this country, don't we? But, you know, how often do we sit down and really hear another person's point of view? And see, that's what's happened with the Bible as well. Here's what we've done. We've read the Bible, and we have to understand that the Bible is a Hebrew culture piece of document that was transliterated and translated in the time of Greek thinking. And Greek thinking and Hebrew thinking are so far apart that we're trying to understand a Hebrew mindset with a Greek thought process. So until I took a moment to try to figure out what's the difference between Hebrew thinking and Greek thinking, man, I'll tell you what, my Bible was conflicting me because I'm, I'm reading it and you know, I can't tell you how many Christians I talk to that get really confused about the Bible because when they read it, it's all about them. And they think every verse is talking about them. And it either condemns them or it exonerates them. So like I always say, you know, you should read your Bible with a pair of scissors. And those verses you don't like, just cut them out. <laughs> Amen? But let's just look at a few of the differences between Hebrew and Greek thinking. Let's go ahead and put that slide up, okay? Should be a little grid. Greek thinking. Greek thinking, you're trained to comprehend things. Whereas Hebrew thinking teaches you to revere things. What can you understand? The Greeks want to have knowledge, whereas the Hebrews want to have understanding and wisdom. They revere thought. They revere what is, not trying to figure out and comprehend it. You have the Greek thinking is always asking why. Why? Why did this happen? Why does that happen? Why? Why, if God was a God of love, do Bad things happen to good people. Whereas the Hebrew thinking is, what should I learn from this? What should I do to become more like God wants me to be? What must I do to obey? Can you see the different thought patterns? The Greek thinking is knowledge about facts or knowledge that leads to understanding and having the facts. Whereas Hebrew thinking is knowledge that leads to intimacy with the one that you're having knowledge of. And intimate knowledge of the source and information. You see, part of the problem of Zimbabwe is that our education system is based on English schooling systems, which teaches you to get the right answer. And as long as you got the right answer on that piece of paper, you get an A. But they never test whether you intimately know the subject and can actually implement it in life. So... So many of you have qualifications and you have no idea how to implement what you know. Hence, Dr. So-and-so is waiting tables in Santon City. And accountant so-and-so is washing dishes in South Africa. And we become, we're able to be managers as long as somebody tells us what to do, but we're not able to be entrepreneurs and we can't think and we can never critically criticize another without feeling insecure. And you know what? We can write and postulate the best papers on the planet, but we can never implement them. 
We have a Zim asset that we can't implement. But our neighbors do. They take it and they say, hey, this looks great. And so Botswana is flourishing on our Zim asset paper. Tell me I'm wrong. I'm trying to help us, and I'm trying to help the church. I'm helping you. Guys, you need to become intimately knowledgeable and get your hands dirty and know what works and doesn't work, not just know. Amen? I'll tell you what it's like. Literally, this is what it's like. It's the difference between reading about sex and having sex. How many of you know that's two different things? One is knowledge, the other is intimate knowledge. That's, what, that's really what the Bible says. One says to know about, the other one is to know intimately, as to have intercourse with. Do we really have intercourse with the knowledge that we have in terms of what we're trying to accomplish? I don't think so. Because our education system hasn't allowed it. Because we're so Greek in our thinking. But the Hebrews wouldn't allow that. In fact, the Hebrew thinking behind this was that before a man could ever attend education for his mind, he had to have a trade. He had to be intimately involved in some kind of a trade, some kind of a business, some kind of a business skill before he could ever go on to university. Before he could go to higher learning. Not so in Zimbabwe. We push out guys to the university as fast as we can. To no jobs, no job market. So we, all of our best minds leave or are going to be protesting in the streets because, you know, what is this all about? Just tap your neighbor and say, ah, pastor's picking on us today. Pastor's picking on us. Tell them. <laughs> put, this, put that back up again. Also, Greek thinking is all about the individual. It's all about me, selfies. I'm wonderful. My body's great. Look how I, my teeth are white. It's all about me. I, me, me, my, my, mine, 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 mine. Whereas Hebrew thinking is about the corporate. They never think just about themselves. It's all about us. It's about the community. It's about family. It's about how my family relates to the families around me. The law wasn't given to protect us and get our rights, the law was to protect our neighbor from us. That's what Hebrew law is. The law was to protect our neighbor from us. Go read about it. But uh, we've taken law to say, law gives me my rights, me. And so we just keep passing more and more laws, more and more rights, and we get crazier and crazier. Now we have rights not only for LGBT, but there's about 15 more letters behind that. You know, so if you feel like you're kind of half male, half female, half it, you can be that today because you can be anything you want to be. And you get rights for that. And we tie aid to those rights. And we manipulate governments because of that. And we have politicians and people that are all too willing to sign those things to get a little bit more money because they're not leading. They're just simply filling their pockets. Which is true. And we don't account for anything because it's all about me. But if we really cared, there would be an accounting for the money. There would be an accounting for life. If you really love your business... You give full account for it. That's why as a church we're ISO-rated. We not only have policy, we hold ourselves accountable to policy in a public fashion. People said, oh, you're falling into the trap of the world. No, they're my policies. They're the policies of our church. And we're saying, hey, we want to be an example to our society. We want to say, hey, we'll live transparently. I'm not selling holy oil and holy water. And I'm not selling a miracle a minute. No, we're building line upon line, precept upon precept, and we're saying, hey, we're trying to use a Hebrew mindset that says we're in this together. Why should the pastor be the guy that has all the bucks and everybody else is struggling? No, we're in this together. Pardon me. Even God 
when Jesus was on the earth, he was very Hebrew. The, the disciples said, teach us how to pray, us how to pray, us how to pray, teach us how to pray. And he said, our, say this, our Father, our, our, not my Father, my Father, my God. My, you know, my Jesus, that's what scares me. That scares me. You have your Jesus. You have your God. But what about our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give me this day my daily bread. No, give us this day our daily bread. Us. Our. our. I'm just as concerned about you getting your daily bread as I get my daily bread. And forgive me my trespasses. No, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others their trespasses. We're connected at the hip, folks. You can't have a ruling class and a poor class in the kingdom of God. You can only have people. I'm really against this. Do I go there? Do I go there? I'm, I'm really against this thing of he's my senior. So I can't confront him. I can't say anything to him. Oh, really? Your senior and you are in the same boat. He's drilling holes in the boat. The boat's going down. Don't say anything to him. Let's all sink together. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You're wonderful, sir. Yes, sir. Drill another hole. Drill another hole. <laughs> hey. Hey. I believe in honoring older people. I believe in honoring your seniors. But let me tell you something. Most of our seniors are clueless when it comes to one of these. Find a 15-year-old. Fix this for me. It takes a child to fix this. Don't give this to a senior. Go to your senior and say, help me with technology. They're going to look at you. And they'll, they'll, they'll probably say, they'll, they'll, they'll say something that sounds really smart. Don't ask me those questions. I'm too busy. I, I Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, don't worry. They, they played that role really good. But please. I already know where to get my phone fixed. My five-year-old grandson, Levi, come here. <laughs> he already knows more about this phone than I do. He's five. I told you the other day he took my phone. He said, Grandpa, can I play the game? I said, sure. I knew he couldn't open the phone. Next thing he's opened the phone, he's playing the game. I said, how did how'd you do that? <laughs> he says, I know your code. I said, how did you know my code? I watched, I watched you. He watched me one time. He saw me push the buttons. He just pushed the same buttons. He was four. That's not right. That, there's something wrong with that. <laughs> but see, when it's I and me and, and it's just us, it, it, it's not us. We're in trouble. And we have a real sickness in our country because it's all about certain individuals. A government minister can show up an hour late to anything he wants to because he's the government minister. You can show up late to church because, well, you're more important than the rest of us because you don't really believe in community. Now, wait a minute. I didn't say your name. If you look straight ahead, just tell your name. I was here early. I was here early. Even if you were late, just lie a little bit. I was here early. I had to go to the bathroom. I know there's an excuse all the time. But that's your, Jew, that's your Greek thinking. That's your Greek thinking, and it's called stinking thinking. Now, wait a minute, I tell you what, there's some good things about Greek, critical thought and things like that. I'm not 100% against Greek thinking. But if you're going to understand God, if you're going to understand what the language he wrote in, you've got to come to some Hebrew thought. Let's pick up some more of those points real quick. I'll get through them. The Greeks think about the holiness of beauty. Whereas the Hebrews is the beauty of holiness. So that's why you have people today that say, Oh, I see God in the sunset. Oh, the sunset is so beautiful. When I get these sunsets, I just, 
I feel God. Oh, when I hug trees. I feel Mother Earth, my God. See, they have the holiness of beauty. But the, and, and, and even themselves, you're more holy the prettier you are. So that's why we have to have liposuction and facelifts and lobotomies. You know what a lobotomy is? You don't have to be smart, you just have to look pretty. But the beauty of holiness is that we understand that those things that are holy are really what are beautiful. To look upon him, to see him, to, to walk in holiness, to have purity in our marriages, to have purity before God and open holy hearts. That's what God sees. The Greeks specialize. Specialize. The Hebrew thinking is general, general and integrated with life. They have a general knowledge, widespread knowledge. They have general knowledge of everything, and they integrate with all of life. I was with a guy in line yesterday, and he was in South Africa. We were flying up from South Africa, and I'm waiting in line to get my passport stamped. And I start talking to him. I'm just, you know, I'm just being friendly. And, I mean, he is so Greek in his thinking. He's so specialized. Well, what do you do? I can't tell you. If I tell you, I have to kill you. You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's like it's like he was so specialized, I mean, and he's he's here on high level delegation with the government. We're doing big things, <laughs> very important things. I said, can you tell me what sector? Well. Let me just say it this way, it's with power. I said, is that political power or is that Zessa? <laughs> well, I'll let you read between the lines. I said, okay, okay. You're too weird for me. You're too specialized for me. <laughs> Put those things up. Oh, the Greek thinking is to master something and to be master over something and to be master over people. Whereas the Hebrew thinking is to serve. Jesus said, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, become the servant of everybody. The Greek thinking is my will be done. Hebrew thinking is thy will be done. Jesus was the master of Hebrew thinking. Even hanging on the cross, he says, Father, if you could take this cup away from me, take it from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Boy, I'll tell you what. Wouldn't it be great if we all learned that lesson a little bit better? Is anybody thinking? Anybody getting any cognitive dissonance today? So let's just take a few minutes and let's start at the beginning, okay? In Genesis 1 and verse 14. Now, this isn't the beginning of my message. This is just the beginning of the Bible, okay? <laughs> in Genesis 1 and verse 14, it says, Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heaven to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. So the Bible says that there were lights in the firmament above, and that they, would, they were created, the sun and the moon, for signs, for seasons, for days, for years. The Hebrew word for seasons is moed, M-O-E-D, moed. Not seasons as we know them. Not like winter, spring, summer, and fall. Not those kind of seasons. Not autumn, wing, not, not, these, not, not rainy season and dry season and hot season and cold season. No, no, it's... It's seasons in God's calendar. In fact, Leviticus 23 verse 2 says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. My appointed times are these. And he gives a whole list of the appointed times that God has. God has not just seasons, but appointed times. The same Hebrew word in the Bible 
moed is translated feasts as well. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of a feast, I think of Thanksgiving, our big Thanksgiving dinner. Or I think of Sadza and Yama and, you know, Roadrunner and, 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 and <laughs> you know, my Garway. <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about? Hey, and I, I mean, and the, oh, and, it's just, and you're eating with your fingers, and it's just, oh, and I mean, it tastes so good. It's just, oh, and it's just before lunch, I know, but it doesn't, can you almost taste it? Is anybody hungry? That's what we think of at a feast. We think of all this food. We're having a feast tonight. Oh, a feast. Relish and chicken and sunset. Oh, a bry, a big bry. Oh, my goodness. It just doesn't get any better than that. But see, the word moed is better translated divine appointments. Not seasons, not feasts, but divine appointments. That is God's, now listen, here's the definition. God's pre-scheduled, or as an American would say, pre-scheduled divine encounters. Operating on a very different calendar from our Gregorian calendar. You see, in the Bible, a day, when it says a day, it means a holy day. A new moon, a Sabbath, a Passover, Pentecost, tabernacles. Years in the Bible refers to jubilee. Every 50 years you have a jubilee. Every seven years you have a shimitar year. We've just come out of the seventh season of seven Shemitah years. In other words, the 49th year is 7 times 7 in the year 77, which is the year of the sword. There's been a cutting off, and now we're moving into the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, where God is doing a new thing. He's restoring things. You have to understand the season that you're in. You don't get that on the Gregorian calendar. You only get that in the Hebrew calendar, understanding Hebrew Days, because God put all this together on the Hebrew calendar. See, the Islamic calendar is based on the moon cycles. They serve the moon god, Allah. So uh, the, the, a Muslim worships Allah, who is the moon god, which is the same exact worship as Diana worship in the Bible. In fact, the images are exactly the same. The crescent moon and the star if you go study those two worships, they're exactly the same. All Muhammad did was take Diana worship and overlay it with his own philosophy. It's exactly the same. And their cycles of worshipers based on moon cycles. Very accurate, by the way. Moon cycles are very accurate. Our whole world operates on the Gregorian calendar. It was started by Julius Caesar and Pope Gregory. It's based only on the sun, the sun calendar, and it's got to do with sun worship, Ra. I think I talked about that before Christmas. Saturnalia, it's all sun worship. It's all tied into sun worship, and it goes all the way back in history. Sun gods and sun worship, and it's scientifically very, very accurate. Let me tell you something. But the Bible says that God set the sun and the moon to be used when divine appointments are concerned. When are the divine appointments? Well, they're set by the sun and the moon. And it's critical for you and I and for understanding the timing of when God wants to intersect with human history. What would your boss say if he told you to meet at 4 p.m. on Friday and you said it wouldn't fit into your schedule? Do you think you'd still have a job? Listen, I want you to fly to Johannesburg and meet me next Thursday at the Intercontinental Hotel because I have a meeting that I need you to meet some of our agents that are coming in from Europe. I need you to be there at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Nah, you know, uh, I, I, it doesn't really fit my schedule. Oh, really? Uh, what's your boss going to say? Oh, that's just fine. I'll tell you what, why don't you take the next ticket out the back door and don't let it hit you on the way out? (sighs) 
What if somebody told you that we had to now celebrate your birthday on a different month? I know you were born in January, but you know what? Or February, but we're going to start celebrating in June. Is that okay? Just in June. Sometime in June. Or how about if we were to celebrate New Year's? Instead of on the 1st of January, we just said, you know what? Let's just celebrate it in August. That, that's New Year for me. Imagine that you're a salesperson. And you have an appointment scheduled with a potential client that could mean the biggest sale you've ever had for your company. And a couple of days before the sale, you go over to our restaurant over here in Connections. And you sit down and you have a cup of coffee and a nice croissant. And you plan your schedule for the next week. It just so happens when you leave that you leave your day timer behind. Your planner is still on the table. Unbeknownst to you, your competitor is sitting in the booth right next to you. Good Christian brother. And as soon as you walk out the door, he goes in and he erases your appointment and changes it to two hours later in your day planner so that you'll be late. Later, you return to pick up your day timer, your, your planner that you so gratefully see is still left on the table. You're so excited. You're so happy. But you have no idea that it's been tampered with. On the day of the appointment, your competitor shows up on time and makes the sale. Because you came an hour and a half late. Well, that's exactly what our adversary, the devil, has done with the Bible calendar. So that we would miss divine appointments. In Daniel 7, verse 25, it says about the devil. He says, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times he will intend to make alterations in what? Times and in law. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. See, that's exactly what the devil has done. The devil is so clever. He's come and instead of attacking us on the front, he just changed the times. So we practice Easter which is the worship of Ishtar. We practice Christmas, which is the worship of Saturnalia. On the 25th, we say, oh, Jesus was born on the 25th. No, he wasn't. Oh, Jesus rose again on Ishtar. No, he didn't. Those are pagan days, pagan calendar days. Those are Gregorian days based on a pagan calendar. And we're so far from God's laws and God's feasts. And yet... God's feasts have been attacked for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And we don't even worship on the same days. Oh, is that important? I mean, we just kind of, you know, it doesn't matter. We're Christians now. We just do whatever we want. Bible timing of God's divine appointments have been changed. Our keeping of the feasts has been undermined. As believers of the gospel of Yeshua or of Jesus Christ, we have been told to celebrate the Lord's Passover. The Bible says that. Passover was called the Lord's Passover, not the Jewish Passover, the Lord's Passover. Yeshua in the gospel of Luke says that Luke said that every year when Passover is celebrated, it is to be done in remembrance of him, in remembrance of his death, his burial, his resurrection. Now, Passover had been celebrated annually for 1,500 years before Jesus on the date 14th month of Nisan. That would be March or April, our time. And this was a commandment of God. So now Jesus was saying, when you celebrate the Passover, no longer do you just remember Moses and the Passover when God passed over the children of Israel and didn't kill their firstborn and God delivered you out of the hand of Egypt, he says, now you remember me. I am your Passover. I am the one who is on the same day that you were delivered from Egypt, now I'm delivering you from the bondage of sin. I'm delivering you from the bondage of sick and sickness and death. Remember me.
Can I tell you something? It was a dress rehearsal for what God wants to do in our lives. Most of Christianity today does not celebrate Passover as Jesus did, as he commanded. Instead, they've instituted a tradition of man, which is a misrepresentation of the scriptures, called communion. And we said, do this in remembrance of him. What? Have communion. No, he says, have Passover in remembrance of me. And when you do the Passover once a year, that's what I want you to remember. There's nothing wrong with communion. We're going to have communion in just a minute. There's nothing wrong with communion, but it's not Passover. And it's not a feast. There's a feast called Passover, and when we do that, we're to remember that, hey, Jesus delivered me from my sins. Jesus, as he delivered the, in the, the first time, in the first mention, the Hebrews, as he delivered the Israelites from the bondage of Pharaoh, he's delivering me. And he has delivered me. Hmm. So when Jesus is saying, do this to remember me, he's saying, do this, that is the keeping of the Passover, as a dress rehearsal in remembrance of what I have done for you and will do for you. So the disciples kept Passover with the knowledge of Yeshua, not just with the memory of the deliverance from Egypt. This is what it means to understand the law of first mention. The Passover lamb was a picture of what was to come. For 1,500 years, the Jews would have a dress rehearsal, a dress rehearsal. Every year on a certain day, they'd have this dress rehearsal. And they'd have, then one day, on that exact day, Yeshua came. And he took the cup. He had with his disciples the ultimate Passover. And he became the sacrificed lamb. He became the one slain from the foundation of the world. He did it all. Hmm. He became our Passover. We do celebrate the resurrection, but we celebrate it according to a pagan calendar rather than a biblical calendar. Easter, or some of us call it Resurrection Sunday, is often celebrated a month before Jesus even died, according to the calendar. And as we've discussed before, Easter actually is the celebration of the sun god, Ishtar. Second Chronicles 20, verses 1 through 3 says, They killed the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the month, responded to the priests, and says he was pleased with their efforts. He appointed celebrating Passover in the second month. We're supposed to do not what is convenient, but what God says. Now, here's what, here's what this is saying. Originally, Passover was in the first month. But there came a time when the Jews could not participate in Passover in the first month. So God said, I allow you, either because you've touched an unclean thing, or because you've made yourself unholy, or possibly because, uh, in one case, because with Hezekiah, they were unable, to, the whole nation was unable to. God says, I'll let you do it in the second month. So God gave a permission in the second month, on the same day of the second month, because God's interested in blessing you. Constantine, okay, who made religion now something controlled by the state, was instrumental in changing the date of Passover celebrations because of heavy anti-Semitism. Jewish hatred at the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. If you read what he said in A.D. 325, he basically said, why should we follow these murderers of Jesus? These, these, these Jewish people who murdered Jesus. Why should we follow any of their feasts? And he changed all the feasts to something more convenient, he said. It would be more convenient for us to have feasts on Easter Christmas, and he changed all the feasts to pagan feasts. It was Constantine that did that because Rome were worshipers of Mishtar. And he was. He was a worshiper of Mishtar. 
and those were the feasts of Mishtar. And yes, although he kind of maybe had some kind of a feeling that maybe there's something to Christianity, it was a political move. Hey, let's get all these Christians. They're getting too big. Let's just move them into our feasts and we'll neutrify them. We'll nullify them. We'll neutralize them. Is anybody getting this? In Acts chapter 3, verses 17 through 21, listen to what it says. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in, Israel, in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So what's this talking about? Well, after the death of Yeshua or the, and resurrection of, of Jesus, Peter is speaking before a huge crowd. And he accuses them, he's accusing them of killing the Messiah. And he also acknowledges that he knows that they had acted in ignorance as their rulers also had. But then he goes on to say that they need to repent that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Then he promised that you would see the return of the appointed Messiah, Yeshua, whom the heaven must receive until the time of the restoration of all things. And this is something that God had spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets long ago. Father, seven times a day we praise you. We worship you. We glorify you. It's 11 o'clock hour. You're worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me bring this to a close. One of the things that needs to be restored, or one of those things needing to be restored back to the body of the Messiah is the observance of God's calendar. One of the things that God's restoring to us is the observance of his calendar. Now, the second key to unlocking the hidden mysteries of the end time events is recognizing that God's divine appointments are holy convocations. In Leviticus 23, verse 2, it says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times which you shall proclaim as holy convocations. It's talking about there are certain times, my appointed times are these. These are holy convocations. These are not Jewish feasts. These are not Jewish convocations. These are the Lord's convocations. The word for convocation here is the word mikra, which simply means the assembly. It refers to people assembling together for a stated purpose at agreed upon times. More, interest, more investigation showed that something else is involved. Now, are you ready for this? The Hebrew word mikra also implies that people would assemble together for a dress rehearsal. That means that they meet on a specific day at a specific time on God's schedule to rehearse what would happen on that very same day sometime in the future. The Passover lamb was slain every year on Nisan 14, the very day that Yeshua died. The very day he died on the cross was the day that the Passover lamb was slain. Every year he became our Passover. 1,500 years before the book of Acts was written, or before the book of Acts took place in Jerusalem, he commanded Israel to gather together on the Feast of Shavuot, known as Pentecost, in Jerusalem. Because in Jerusalem, on that very day, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, would be poured out and would turn the world upside down. On that day, 1,500 years later, for 1,500 years, the Jews would go to, to and, and, and celebrate Pentecost. And nothing happened, but they would get there, they would go through everything. Sing the songs, re repeat the Psalms, repeat all the scriptures, pronouncing this thing to happen. Then one day, boom, the Holy Ghost fell and the whole city heard about it. Changed the world forever. How many of you say, I believe that the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Do you really believe it? Well, then this next text from the Bible is going to rock your world. Because if he really is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then we have to understand. He has already fulfilled all the three spring feasts. 
Those referred to his first coming. And so if he was faithful to fulfill the first three feasts on the exact day, the exact time that was prophesied, do you not think he's going to fulfill the last three about his second coming on the exact same day at the exact same time? No man knows the exact day or hour, but we do know the day and the time. We don't know which year it's going to be, but we do know the day and we do know the time. And it's going to be us getting prepared for those things for his second coming. In the weeks to come, I'm going to be investigating the spring feast in detail, including not only how they were fulfilled, not only to the day, but to the very hour. And then we're going to explore the fall feast and show you prophetically what will happen on these, these very days in the future. By no means am I setting dates. We have no idea what year anything happens, but we can know the times and we can know the seasons. And now we know that the phrase times and seasons refers to God's divinely appointed times on God's calendar. When I ask people if they want to be at the wedding of the Messiah, how many of you would like to be at the wedding of the Messiah? And the rest of you? Not so sure? Well, then why don't you want to be at the dress rehearsal? See, every wedding I've ever done, we have a night before we have a dress rehearsal. Guess what? God has dress rehearsals for his wedding day. There's a wedding day. There's a wedding day. And every year we have the and every year we get to have the dress rehearsal on the day. That's the day we're gonna have the wedding. We just don't know what year. It's the same with the coronation of the Messiah. Every year at the appointed time on God's calendar, thousands of people from all over the world join the angelic host in rehearsing the Messiah's coming. God's command in Leviticus 23, verse 2 says, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which are to, proclaim, to be proclaimed as sacred assemblies. That was for his children to proclaim all these divine appointments. In the Hebrew word, the root means to call out by names those who have been bidden to come to the event. It is a personal invitation to everybody. We see this in the Bible, in Matthew. Matthew. 22nd chapter. The king sends forth all those who do his bidding. He says, Call the guests now. The time has come for the wedding. The table is prepared. The, send out the notifications. This is the time. And everybody had an excuse why they couldn't come. He says, okay, that's fine. Go out into the highways and the byways. Find everybody. Get everybody you can. Get them to come. Even then the house wasn't full. He says, hey, go out. Find them in the hedgerows. Find them wherever you can. Go out and get them. Two things I want us to do today. Number one, folks, I want us to begin to study these feasts, and I want to make sure that we're all in church on time for these feasts. I don't want any of us to miss it. As a church, we're going to move away from Easter and Christmas and all that stuff. Not because, if you want to keep practicing that, I don't care. I'm not worried about that. They're just pagan feasts, but you just do that. But we're going to begin as a church to practice the days that God set. Now, now we're not becoming Jewish. These are the Lord's feasts. They're the Lord's feasts. But we're rehearsing. I'm going to go rehearse. Now, God, what does it look like? Because you're coming back. I'm, I'm sure the apostles were glad they were in the upper room on, the, on, the, on Pentecost. Doing what they're doing, rehearsing. And God showed up. Are you listening? The second thing I want you to do is not only do we want to rehearse things, but I want us as a church to double down, to go out into the highways and byways and tell people, hey, listen, there's an appointed time. We know the time. We don't know the day, but we know the time. These are God's feasts come. There's a wedding banquet. We want you in. We don't want you to miss this. 
Hey, we don't want you to miss what God's about to do. Look, he was faithful at Passover. He was faithful at first fruits. He was faithful in these first three feasts. Can I tell you something? He's coming back again. He was faithful at Pentecost in the middle. And there's three feasts left. We know the day. We don't know the hour. We know what day it falls on in the, in the cycle of things. We just don't know which week, which month, which year. We don't, we don't know what year. That's it. Are you ready to follow? And just prepare yourself. Let's have a rehearsal. This year, let's have the rehearsal. Hey, guess what? We're rehearsing, but this may be the year that it actually happens. In the meantime, hey, it was a good rehearsal. Hey, we did good. But next year, good rehearsal. Next year, good rehearsal. Next year, woohoo! it's all over, baby. Uh, we don't know. Hey, we may not get to see it in our lifetime. 1,500 years went by before Passover actually came. But can we get busy? Let's get busy saving as many as we can. It's helping people into the kingdom of God. It's our only hope for our nation. Jesus is our only hope. Yeshua. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more teachings and videos, visit celebrationmen.org.